Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you're well. I hope it's not too cold where you are. The weather's kind of up and down here in D.C., but we are home to the world champion Washington Nationals. So, you know, we'll take that. Um, on this week's show, I'm excited to have Stephanie Walter join me. Uh, Stephanie uh, had a post a while back a, a bit ago about um, making your visualizations and your designs color accessible to people uh, who might have uh, color vision issues or might have uh, intellectual disabilities or might have other constraints uh, that they need to interact with your website or with your tools or with your software or, or whatever it is. Um, so I was really interested to hear what she's thinking about when it comes to accessibility because I'm, of course, thinking about it uh, when it comes to data visualization. How do we make our scatter plots and how do we make our slope charts um, and how do we make all of the visualization tools that we uh, create and publish, how do we make them accessible uh, to folks who need to use them and, and may have uh, some other needs when it comes to working with a website. So uh, so we chatted for a while, and I hope you'll enjoy the show. Um, before we get to that, don't forget that um, I uh, do rely on the support of my listeners. So if you would like to share the show with uh, other folks in your social networks or with your friends or even call your, your folks up and tell them uh, that this show is great, uh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to uh, see that happening. And if you'd like to support the show financially, that'd be great. Um, I've set up a couple new tiers over at Patreon. So you can go over and check out uh, what goodies you can get if you'd just like to support the show with you know three or five bucks a month, something like that. Uh, it helps me uh, cover all the costs of associated with the show. So I'm really thankful for the folks that are my current patrons and would love to uh, see some more so I can uh, keep bringing this show to you every other week. So uh, this is my conversation with Stephanie and I hope you'll enjoy it. Hi, Stephanie. How are you? Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Hi. I've been following your Twitter feed now since this post you wrote a little while ago that we'll talk about. I'm amazed at all the great stuff that you have. That comes out. It's like, it's like daily inspiration to watch your Twitter feed go by. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you read a lot of articles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's like you're becoming my like uh, my library of what to read for the day. Yeah, that's pretty nice. That's pretty nice to have. Um, so I thought we would talk about design and we talk about accessibility and whatever else we just want to chat about. Um, do you want to? Maybe talk a little bit about yourself and your background and so people can get to know you. Yeah, sure. So I'm a designer, um, UX designer to be precise. I'm French originally, but I currently work in Luxembourg. So I also like worked in Germany a little bit, in France and now in, uh, in Luxembourg. And yeah, at the moment I'm a consultant, which means it's actually really cool because it means that I get to go to company, help them solve some issues and try to put some process in places and everything regarding user experience, user research, also trying to bring a little bit more UX and design maturity to some of, to some of those companies. Oh, interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about like what would a typical job for you look like when a firm brings you in like how do you work with them to improve the usability of their websites whoa this this is really (laughs) there's no (laughs) no typical job really oh that's cool no it's basically like you try to assess it so you do some interview with users you try to understand their needs 
you can also do a lot of things. Like one of the um, the company I worked for was a US company, and they hired me just like for two weeks to help them do usability review. And I had access to um, something called full story, which is basically you can actually see the users what they are doing. And it's super interesting because then you do your usability review. So you say, okay, this doesn't work from a usability perspective. But also, like, I checked a lot of the users here into this funnel, and I've seen that half of them completely abandon the website at this point. So there's actually a pain point here. Here is how we might solve mm. it and everything. So, yeah, it's really, really interesting. So sometimes you get direct contact with users. Sometimes it's through, like, survey or you have some interview through Skype or whatever tool you use to to call people. So, yeah, you you make a diagnosis of what's not working and then you try to iterate, discuss with the developers, discuss with the business also to try to understand, okay, this is the user need. What's your business need here? What's your also like technical requirements? You go to the developer, you try to understand. And then with all of this data, you will try to build a solution that will work for users. Also, while trying to keep those company needs, because at some point, most of the company want to make money. So this is also something really complex. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting because, well, I, I guess my question is, do you find that a lot of these companies are not doing the sort of qualitative survey driven interviews that you're doing? And it's driven more by hard quantitative metrics of we're looking for clicks and time on the page, but they're not actually talking to their users. It really, really depends on the maturity mm-hmm. of the companies. Like I also like, oh. I worked for companies where I worked on internal tools. So that's mm-hmm. also something interesting because then there's no like real matrix like KPA and we need to make money. Here is mostly mm-hmm. about, okay, we have an internal tool. It's not really efficient. How can we improve it so that the people within the company who are using this tool are more efficient. So the KPIs and the metrics really, really depend. Sometimes it's money. Sometimes it's also kind of user well-being. Like there's something quite trendy at the moment, which is like, so you have UX, user experience design. You have CX, which is customer experience. I know I've seen something about EX, which is employee experience. So And you have mm. service design. So all of these kind of things, sometimes a little bit blend together. It's basically about trying to make people kind of happy about using something, whether it's a product, a service, or something within the company. Right, right. Really interesting. Um, Well, I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about accessibility because you have this great post uh, about color accessibility, and I'm and I'm sure you're doing this in your consulting work too. (laughs) Um, And I was hoping you could talk you could talk a little bit about. I mean, color accessibility as well, but also at least according to the to the stuff I've seen on your website and your in your social media feeds, it looks like you spend a lot of time thinking about accessibility. And I think a lot of people in the data and data science and data visualization communities struggle with this because they're not exactly sure what are the parameters and what are the rules mm-hmm. and, and what are the things they're supposed to look for. So maybe you could talk about some of these general issues and, and what people should be thinking about as they're putting stuff online. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, accessibility is basically trying to make a website 
accessible to as many people as possible. So make sure that as many people as possible regarding disabilities they have are able to access, digest, understand your content. So that's kind of the basics. So as a designer, usually the main thing you can do is take care of the colors. So this can be kind of a huge issue. And this is also like a huge issue with database, for instance, is that some people don't perceive the colors the same way as everyone else. So you have colorblind people, you might have contrast issue and other things like that. So when you talk about data visualization, for instance, usually what I see on a website is like these really, really nice like pie charts or bars or every anything that have different kind of variation of the same gradient color. And the issue for some users is that they might not kind of see the difference between some of those colors. So one of the main things you can do is when you do data visualization, things like that, is do not use only color to convey information. So it can be labels, it can be patterns, it can be a lot of things. If you think about form, for instance, some people who have difficulties perceiving red uh, versus green, for for example, if your error, you only like put a red border to tell users, okay, those fields are, are not working and no other information, then they might perceive this as just another shade of gray or something, uh, gray and so on. So they right. might not actually right. see that there's an error. So this is kind of the, the, the complex part. And also you can have contrast issue and that's something complex with accessibility because usually when you arrive in a company, they have a visual identity. And sometimes this visual identity is really complicated to use, like yellow and orange. Those two colors yeah. are quite complex. And also my website is actually yellow and purple. But that's the thing, for instance, ah. for yellow, you, you basically, you can't write text in yellow on a white background because it's right. it's hard to read and almost impossible to read for other people. But still, like, if yellow is part of your visual identity, some people might say, okay, I don't care. I want to write the text in, ye in yellow, you know. So then you start kind of fighting, arguing, entering into some debates. And it's really hard, to be honest, to be an advocate for accessibility in Europe because in the US, you have class actions and you have law. Like, for at the moment, Domino's Pizza, their website isn't accessible and there's a class action mm -hmm. against them. So... A few mm. users come, came together and say, okay, no, you are supposed to be accessible. This is a law. Please do something about it. So this is what you have in the US. In Europe, it's kind of uh, government and institution websites have to be accessible by law. But there's no real law for the moment, I think, about like the private, se the private sector. So when mm. you arrive in a company, you say, yeah, okay, but you know, like, this call to actions, the button, they're not accessible. Also, you can navigate using the keyboard and you have this and this accessibility issue. They're like, yeah, okay, but what's the risk? What's What yeah. might happen? Like, well, first, some of the users... <laughs> some of your users can can't use it, it. Right? It's like, yeah, but <laughs> how many percentage of the population? You're like, yeah, that's at least yeah. 15%, maybe 20%, depending if you add like cognitive disabilities, things like that. And they're like, yeah, sure. But legal department said it, we don't risk anything. So yeah, we, we're not 
we're just not gonna do it because we don't have time we don't we don't have budgets and you're like okay <laughs> so it's usually <laughs> like you try different approaches you you try to go step by step like okay maybe at the moment the website is inaccessible but we are going to build new components so you try to go to the developer say hey by the way did you test your component with um, a keyboard or did you test them with a screen reader so you, you you're starting kind of really slowly building it from bottom to top instead of top to bottom so mm -hmm. yeah do you think that a lot of i mean i have i have seen this in the past where places have you know they have their branding colors but their branding colors don't work so well for the data visualization because it looks nice in the logo yeah. and on the on the letterhead but when you try to make a graph it looks really dark or the colors are too similar so is that something that firms should be thinking of a little bit more broadly or a little bit, you know, I guess a little more detailed that the colors might look nice in your logo and on your letterhead, but, you know, it's not great for data viz. It's not, maybe it's not great for accessibility. Like, is that something that designers should be thinking more about? Mm, yes, I think that's like, usually when people create browns, they might not think about digital products. Like so many brands were created as by marketing and design agency who were thinking about the print. Like I usually get visual identity where I have the Pantone color. I'm like, yeah, okay, that's nice. But on the web, I can't use Pantone. I need the hexadecimal color for that. So, mm -hmm. and sometimes when you convert directly the Pantone, which is, looks really, really great on paper into hexadecimal, it doesn't work. So you kind of have to adapt at some point. So yeah, that's something people who do brand identity should try to think about like, okay, this is the color of the logo, but could we have some other different colors that we can actually use with the brand together? But I think that also there's a lot of company have something interesting. Like I think there was a website I can't remember what it was, but who basically like picked up all of the colors used by a brand. And then you see that they're using more colors than on their website, for instance, than actually the colors of their logos. So yeah, this is mm. something like as a design exercise that people should do like, okay, main colors, secondary colors, but what if in a, if I need data visualization or what if at some point I want to have a variant of that because, I don't know, an intranet or something? Mm -hmm. So for people who are thinking beyond an addition to their color, so in terms of accessibility, especially for images, this is a thing that we work on a lot here at work uh, because you have in the United States, you have this 508 compliance issue of um, you know, people with vision difficulties have to be able to read or at least use a screen reader to read the content on the website. Like what are some of the things that you think about or that you're working on clients to think about when it comes to helping people you, you know, have accessible content on, on their websites? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> I know it's like, it's like a big, it's like a huge yeah. topic and that's why I'm, I'm so curious about it. Cause topic. Yeah. I would say first semantic HTML is the basics. Mm. You know, by default, mm -hmm. we already have a lot of accessibility built in the HTML that is provided and that you are supposed to use in the browser. 
for instance, like, yeah, for images, you have an alt attribute. SVG, you can also have descriptions, things like that. There's a figure. Uh, no, I don't remember which attribute, but there's one for, like, longer descriptions. It's the same for forms. For instance, you can link a label to a field using uh, some things in HTML to do that. So the basic HTML elements we have are already accessible. So use them. Mm. It's the same for buttons, you know, like I had so many discussions with developers. Like I was working on a project and I don't know why I checked the HTML of the project. I shouldn't have. But there were like divs, 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 divs everywhere. And the developer just recreate the button out of this. And I asked him like, why did you do that? Because now I can't like go through the interface using a keyboard. And he said, yeah, because in some... Uh, uh, test, uh, one of the users clicked on the button, he dragged the mouse out of the button, and then the button kept the active state and he said it was an issue. And I was like, no, this is not an issue. This is how a, b a button is supposed to work. So yeah, also it's complex to yeah. style in CSS. Like, again, now it's not really complex to style a button in CSS. So what he ended right. up doing was trying to recreate all of the different states of a button using JavaScript, but he forgot about one of the main things about the button is that you can trigger it using a keyboard, for instance. Also, like screen readers mm -hmm. are going to read it properly. So he put so much effort into recreating something that already exists in the browser, and then it wasn't accessible. Uh, yeah. So, right, right. Do you have um, screen readers that you like? Like, are there are there good screen readers that people should use in their own when they're at least when they're testing their own work? I'm not blind, so uh, <laughs> I don't have like you know preferences. <laughs> so this yeah. is kind of a, a complex question. There's a few screen readers on the market. From what I've discussed with accessibility expert with blind people on Mac, a lot of people use the default voiceover which is integrated yeah. into the OS. On Microsoft, yep. there's like Joe, but you have to pay. There's NVDA, I think something like that, which is free. Mm -hmm. There's a few other, other ones, but the complex part about that is like a lot of people use different screen readers. They can also change the settings a little bit. So this is mm -hmm. screen reader is, is a... <laughs> You, you need, I think, a whole podcast just about screen readers with an expert <laughs> if, you want, <laughs> if you really want to go super deep into that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a complex question. Usually when I test accessibility, I test with, like, um, what's uh, my keyboard. I try voiceover, mm -hmm. but I'm not quite used to navigate. Like, people using screen readers, they have shortcut. There's something called rotor where they can actually kind of have a list of the element of the page and go through this really, really quickly so they don't need to read the whole page. So there's a lot of different mm. ways one can navigate on a website. So, yeah. I mean, you're presumably working in a lot of different languages. I mean, you, you're from France, working in Luxembourg, also in, working in German, Germany. German, like... English, and uh, French, you know, for and most French. of my clients. Are there big differences in the languages and the way people use websites in those three different languages, three different, you know, cultures and countries, or is it pretty similar the way, I guess, humans use content on the internet? Mm, from what I've seen, we don't have like really different, different things for the three yeah. languages, like, especially in Luxembourg, a lot of people speak English, but it's right. more like 
feature wise uh like or even like mm. target audience for instance so i work for a airline company and they provide uh they also provide tours so you can book either only the ticket for the pl- uh, for the flight or you can also book like tickets for a flight plus the hotel and what they discovered right. is that actually most of the people who do that speak french because they like to have the whole package where they will know that someone who speaks French will be able to help them in the hotel and everything. While the German people, most of the time, they speak English really well. So it's kind of okay for them if they don't have like a French translator or something. So this is not really about how people use the website. It's also about like our target audience, which in this case might be like more people speaking French than German and English, actually. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, really. I mean... I always wonder whether when you go to other cultures, like in Asia, for example, where the kanji or the letters are going vertically instead of horizontally, or in, in cultures where the writing is going right to left instead of left to right, like are all the toggles different? Are they vertical instead of horizontal? Or is it, or that's just like a universal, we, we've built this universal um, understanding of how buttons and toggles are supposed to work, or, oh, or they change think. from, from like, area to area. That's yeah. what localization <laughs> is a lot about. It's not only about translating the the website; it's also about really making sure that it actually works for the specific culture. But it's quite interesting to work in Luxembourg because we have a lot of different like people, different cultures. We have a huge uh, Portuguese immigration and uh, also Italian immigration, mm. so it's quite a lot of different languages and mix and it's really really funny because like France is really close and Germany also but you have those kind of small differences like we wanted to do a barbecue with my colleagues and the Luxembourgish guy said okay uh, I'm going to bring one baguette so you know what a baguette is it's like bread yeah and it's like yeah but we are yeah. eight people one baguette is not going to be enough we need at least three or four and the guy's like what how much bread do you people eat and the thing is, like, in France, when you do barbecue, you have the sausage, and this is going to be a real conversation. So you have the sausage, and the baguette needs to be the exact size of the sausage. While in Luxembourg, uh-huh. the baguette is just, like, kind of a, a way to hold the sausage. So, yeah, you need quite a small little amount of baguette in Luxembourg compared to the one we have in France. And, you know, this this is really, really silly, small stuff, but, like, France is quite close to Luxembourg so you might think that it's not that different but there's like this really small little nuggets of culture (laughs) that make it super fun to kind of have discussions (laughs) with colleagues and everything yeah yeah I mean these differences are are, yeah these are these are interesting I mean you you also have I think you've also written about um uh, accessibility with accents and emojis, right? Uh, emojis, not that much, but mostly like about accents. It wasn't really about accessibility. Yeah. It was more about user experience for like special characters, which is oh, basically okay. like I'm Stephanie and I have a EAQ, so I've got this weird character, this uh-huh. special character. Apart, yeah, <laughs> special character. It's not weird. The other it's ones special. Aren't special yeah. enough, you know. And I have so many examples of websites <laughs> who wouldn't allow to have my special character, so I need to kind of change or misspell my name and everything, which makes funny, mm-hmm. funny stories. For instance, like I used to work for a French company, a really, really famous 
French forum, uh, who was all about teaching HTML, CSS, so development stuff. And I was poorly encoded in the database and no one was able to know what was going on. <laughs> so it kind of became <laughs> a private joke with the people on the, on the forum, which is fine. But then I had like stories from some people who were almost denied boarding a flight because uh -huh. the special character wasn't printed on the boarding pass. And then the boarding pass didn't match exactly their passport. For instance, Amelie. Then on the boarding on her passport, mm -hmm. it was Amelie. But if you read it, the E was missing. So it was Amelie. And yeah, of mm -hmm. course, this was in the US. <laughs> Like those people really, they <laughs> right. they, yeah. they don't joke with boarding persons. No, no, we're pretty, yeah, we're pretty serious and about it. Yeah, we, you we, had yeah. like, they had to wait like 30 minutes or something, maybe hoping they, that they would actually be able to sort to, to, to board the flights. And this is just because like somewhere in one of those systems, it wasn't able to print the EIQ. So, so there's like, yeah. you know, this... It seems like some trivial issues, but at some point, you know, when you have developers who, you know, like people who need to remind to the developers that the name of the CEO of the company is like uh, Lee, so L-E, mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. them understand that no names can have less than two characters. So you can't like put a, a rejects or something to validate the names because a name can be a lot of different characters and a lot of... so right. This is kind of yeah. Of no, I I know in the U.S. the U.S. Postal Service website, you can go in and you can set up your customs form if you want to send something internationally, and if there are accents on the name or on the address when you put them into the to the form boxes and you click submit, it gives you an error and you're not allowed to submit it. And for the first few times I was doing it, I could not figure out mm -hmm. what the problem was. And it turns out that if anything that has an accent on it, it doesn't. It doesn't recognize that that field anymore. Yeah, so <laughs> that's kind yeah. of a crappy experience. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is, and it's and it's not even that it's my name or my address; it's someone mm. else's address. So it's it's not even like that personal experience to me. Like it's not my name, right? It's someone else's name, but just as the as the user, it's really yeah. Personal. I had issues with parcels. I was lucky enough to send them to my company, so I was able to get it, but. It was so poorly encoded that in the end, my name and last name ended up merging with a string of completely amazing special characters in the middle. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, if I didn't send this to my company, but to my personal address, the people from the post office, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have guessed what was my first name and last name. Right. So. So at some point, like right. you can do all the efforts you want on the website. If you have those kind of, things that looks like really little glitches but they at some point they can really damage the whole experience so that's yeah, really interesting well i'll try to get it right <laughs> when uh when i post this episode make sure i get all the action right. um, no i'm fine with it <laughs> well i'll link to your posts and your website and uh hopefully people will uh start to follow you and, and learn about all these different things that they should consider when they're building their websites and their and their visualization so um like you said it's a it's a complex yeah. issue and really interesting so um so thanks so much for coming on and, and chatting about it. Thanks for having it. me. It's been great awesome. chatting with you. <laughs> I hope yes, so. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Thanks a lot.
Thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that show. hope you enjoyed that interview. And I hope you'll think a little bit more about uh, how your visualizations and how your websites can be made accessible to different groups uh, and different populations. So uh, again, if you'd like to support the show, please uh, drop me a line on the show notes page. Please share it with your friends and uh, your social media networks. And uh, also consider supporting the show on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can get uh, some policy viz swag over there uh, just by uh, sending over a couple bucks a month. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.